I'm your host, Cullen, and this is Cauldron, a military history podcast. They fought then, and each of them endeavored to slaughter the other, and they fell by each other. And the way that they fell was with the sword of each other through the heart of the other, and the hair of each in the clenched hand of the other. This week on Cauldron, we're going back to Good Friday, April 23rd, 1014, to the Emerald Isle itself, Ireland. On the beaches just north of Dublin, Brian Baru defeated an uprising and the existential Viking threat, saved his kingdom and country, and lost his life. Let's go back to the Battle of Clontarf. Thank you guys for joining us again. It means a lot to me that you keep coming back and listening to the show. Uh, the feedback that we've been getting lately has been great, so uh, I love to hear it. And I love to see it, so follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, Other than that, let's get right into Clontarf. So last week we talked about the Viking-on-Viking battle of Svoldor and how that kind of kicked off the decline of the Viking Age, which in the process we covered briefly the Viking spread in its history in Scandinavia. This week we're going to zoom in on Ireland and how that island dealt with the foreign invaders. So before 795 AD, Ireland was like a lot of European regions. Uh, It was a kind of a confused mishmash of minor kingdoms. The map of all the clans, tribes, petty kingdoms, and regional powers looks a lot like a Pollock painting. It's very, very, very scattered and seemingly uh, at random, all sorts of different kingdoms and, and different powers at play. For untold centuries, the Irish were never conquered by Rome or by anybody else until the English came about, and they went about their business of killing and betraying one another for land, money, or religion with no real reason to change that or to submit to one overall king. If anything, uh, everyone was happy with getting a taste of the pie, and there was really no need to try anything different. So some kingdoms and kings eventually gained enough of the pie to very tenuously claim a kind of overlordship, but this was rare and fleeting at best until the time of our story. It was in this kaleidoscope world of shifting loyalties and never-ending power struggles that the Norsemen first landed in 795 on Lamb Bay Island in Dublin Bay. I saw one source that said this may actually have been the same group of Viking raiders that had hit Lindisfarne off the coast of, uh, off the coast of England, which, if that's the case, it's a, I mean, it's a very interesting tie-in to the greater world events uh, in for our story. And just like whatever else they, uh, you know, whatever else they touched or wherever else they landed, the Vikings became the most hated and feared enemy imaginable. One Irishman speaking centuries after the events we're talking about today claimed that the Vikings represented, quote, evil incarnate, unequaled until Cromwell himself, end quote. Which, uh, if you know anything about the Irish then you know how much they hate, detest, loathe Oliver Cromwell. So you kind of get the idea of the effect, the long-lasting trauma that the Vikings left on the people of Ireland. And, and like everywhere else, the Vikings brought just untold misery to the Irish coast. 
They would glide onto the beaches in their sleek longships that we talked about last week. They would hop out, and then they would burn, rob, kill, and rape their way through the mostly unprotected villages and towns of coastal Ireland. Uh, When resistance did pop up, they would slip away back onto the sea and then seek out a weaker target. Uh, The Vikings were great hunters, so they really, they went with the path of least resistance wherever possible. They didn't, they weren't trying to get into a fight. They were very good at fighting and they were very capable warriors, but they, their goal was not to get into any kind of combat situation. They were trying to just go in, get the easy, quick pickings and then get out kind of like a wolf or, you know, a pack of wolves. And because Ireland was Catholic, churches and monasteries and abbeys and religious sites were generally off the table as targets for the intrinsian Irish wars. So the Irish wouldn't attack these religious sites simply because they were all Catholic and you don't want uh, you don't want to take the the wrath of God simply because you're trying to raid your opponent. You also don't want them to do the same to yours. So a lot of these monasteries and religious sites weren't very well protected because there was really no need for defenses for them within the context of Irish, you know, Irish kingdoms uh, warring against each other, which obviously just made them perfect, vulnerable uh, targets for Viking attacks. Unlike in the other areas where Norsemen struck, the pure slash-and-burn playbook was thrown out in Ireland because the Vikings came and they set down roots. In 840, they created a settlement called a Longport, which was basically a strong point that the Vikings could safely winter over in, which extended their raiding season and created a defensible safe zone for them to fall back on if things got out of hand on any of their raids. And along the Liffey and Pottle Rivers, the Vikings set up a trading post and long port on a spit of land that they eventually would call Dublin, which means Black Pool. From here, the Vikings branched out and formed smaller uh, Norse communities in the region. And Dublin became a booming town with trade links all over the European and Mediterranean world. There were coins from uh, the Arabs that were found in some of the uh, archaeological digs in Dublin at the time. And the growth of these communities of what the Irish called, quote, Gentiles, because, uh, because the Vikings were pagans, was boosted when in the 800s the Vikings took control of the Hebrides or Hybrides or Hebrides, Uh, and the islands around Scotland and Ireland. These friendly ports gave the Vikings the ability to build up fleets of over 100 ships. So that dynamically changes their raids on the Irish coast, because now not only do you have uh, places where you can build up your force and muster, but you have islands nearby that are going to create this chain directly from Scandinavia to Ireland. So all along the way, you have this kind of pipeline of fresh warriors, fresh ships, fresh equipment, all coming from Scandinavia and ending up in Ireland. This amplification of power allowed the Vikings to start moving inland and hitting the kingdoms and the clans that up until this point had pretty much gone unscathed because when they were, you know, coming in boats of, 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 you know, of force of one or two boats, that's 30 to 60 men 
And if you're going to go inland, you're really, really risking getting overwhelmed by even a, you know, a small village fjord or a small group of, of well-armed men could take out a small group of Vikings like that. If they have a lot of ships, they're able to bring a lot of more, a lot more men to bear, and they're also able to use the rivers like the Shannon River as a highway, and this gives them the ability to bring overpowering force to bear on the people that are on the interior of the Irish uh, land. So on the interior of Ireland, eventually the Vikings are able to strike out from there. But as we know. History is as fickle as the wind that powered the Viking sails, and sometime before 900, the Vikings started to lose some of their steam. It seems like there was infighting uh, back in Scandinavia, and maybe some power was being siphoned off from Ireland to go deal with either things in, the, uh, in England or in Scandinavia proper. And there was also a couple of battlefield losses that the Vikings suffered at the hands of the Irish. So the Viking onslaught at the time was slowed down by a few of these losses. And for a time, there wasn't necessarily peace, but there was kind of a general lowering of temperatures. And like many invaders from ancient times to the modern day, the overpowering aggressor who was conquering someplace was bit by bit absorbed into its conquered territory's culture. The Irish were never officially conquered by the Norsemen or the Romans or anybody else until the English. And in fact, the Norse assimilation seems to have gone really one way. It doesn't seem like the Irish were taking as much from the Vikings as the Vikings were taking from the Irish, because uh, one source I read said that there were only about 50 words in the Vi Irish language that were derivative from uh, Norse, and that the that you would expect to see a lot more of that. Uh, the Irish place names were never really changed away from the original Irish. So even like Dublin, that was the original Irish name that the Vikings kind of took on. Most of the time when a conqueror comes in, they want to assert themselves and kind of force the people to change. So you'd see place names especially getting changed to something more in line with the conquering culture. And certainly not many of the local Irish population was converting to paganism. The opposite was quite true. Uh, the only real sign that the Vikings left an impression on the Irish, other than the historical and cultural trauma, obviously, was in art, in craftsmanship, in trade, and in the use of the battle axe, which the Irish seemed to have taken to rather warmly. In fact, the contemporary accounts changed their wording on account of how many Vikings were converting and intermarrying, becoming bilingual, assimilating. Uh, they changed that word of Gentile to now they just called them the foreigners. So there were the black-haired foreigners, or which would have been the Hiberno-Norse, the Irish Vikings. And then there were the yellow-haired foreigners, uh, which would have been the true Vikings from Scandinavia. And as we'll see, there were in fact some of these black-haired foreigners fighting for Brian Baru and the Irish cause at Clontarf. So to get to the star of the show and Brian Baru and the Battle of Clontarf, I'm going to zoom past a bunch of stuff that happened in Ireland between when the Vikings land and Brian Baru's rise to power. But it's definitely worth checking out, and I would suggest you dive into some of the sources. I'll put them in the show notes. 
but totally interesting stuff. Just I there's a lot, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. So the Vikings suffered a bunch of blow or uh, suffered a bunch of setbacks, and then the Unil faction. That's U-I-N-E-I-L-L, so I probably pronounced it wrong, but I'm going to say Unil. Uh, they were the kings of Tara. They neutralized the Norse threat, and for centuries, this particular clan was the uh, the predominant high king of Ireland. They were kind of the acknowledged clan that always was at the top of the pecking order, and they did, in fact kind of slow or play a role in slowing down the advance of the Vikings in Ireland. Uh, so they, they kind of earn that title. For our purposes, there are, are about a baker's dozen, maybe 13, 14 total uh, important kingdoms ranging in power from the, the more powerful, like the Unil, to the very weak and almost forgotten. Uh, out of pretty much nowhere, one of those kind of forgotten off to the side clans the Dalkais or Delkais, D-A-L-C-A-I-S. If anybody knows their Gaelic, please let me know how to say this stuff. I couldn't find anything on YouTube. So the Dalkais faction of Munster, which is in southwest Ireland, began its ascent to power. And this is a faction that would eventually be the the, the cornerstone of Brian Baru's power base. The, Brian Brew's uh, father was Sentig MacLorkin, and he was rising to power in uh, the like the nineteen or the nine hundred thirties to nine fifty two. He dies, and his second son, uh, Mathgammon, took the reins. And Mathgammon spent the next twenty plus years building on the power base that his father had left him, enlarging the influence of the Dalcas and Munster. And in nine seventy six. Mathgammon was betrayed by a rival king and executed, which left the seat of power within the Munster clan and the Dalcast clan open for Brian Baru. Now, Brian Baru is the kind of star of today's show. He's one of 12 siblings born to uh, Sentig MacLorkin. And he was never likely to be king. Uh, there's a bunch of guys in front of him, but through a bunch of uh, circumstances, he becomes king, and after inheriting the crown from his brother, Brian spent the next number of years securing his base in Munster and reestablishing dominance in the southwest of Ireland. Eventually, he's able to exert control over Limerick and Waterford and many of the Viking-controlled territories along the coast in the southeast. At Belak Lecta, in 978, Brian made himself the undisputed king of Munster, and in the process, he avenged his, bro his brother's death by killing his murderer and marrying off one of his daughters to the son of his brother's murderer. This is a really important moment because it gives us a little bit of insight into Brian Baru. He's playing chess and everybody else is playing checkers. He's making moves. He's seeing the board clearly. He's doing things that will kind of buy him time, buy him some power, buy him some uh, some flexibility. So by tying the son of a potential future problem uh, to him with a marriage alliance, he's trying to ensure that one of his potential uh, flanks is now secure. 
And he does this over and over and over again. He's The whole thing is a mess of a uh, family tree because even in this battle at Clontarf, we see Brian Baru's facing off against two different guys and both of them are tied to his family. One is his brother-in-law and one is his son-in-law. Uh, but we'll get there in a second. So Brian is very good at kind of making making moves and then planning ahead. And with his base secure in Munster, Brian targeted the big fish, the O'Neill clan, and the leader of that, the High King at the time, is Mael Secnail. Uh, it's M-A-E-L-S-E-C-C-H-I-N-A-I-L-L. And again, I'm pronouncing that wrong, but I also saw like four different ways to spell all of these names. So I'm not too worried about it. Anyhow, Mail, which is what I'm going to call him, is the High King of Ireland. He's the leader of the O'Neill uh, faction. And for years, Brian kind of picks at and pecks at the O'Neill power. And the two go back and forth with a lot of battles being fought between the two, both sides winning and losing their fair share. Uh, they're exhausted, and they recognize that they're they're too evenly matched for one of the uh, one or the other to pull away. The two sides recognize neither one of them is going to be supreme. So instead of wasting each other's strength on each other, and m- more likely probably just to give themselves a breather so that they can try and build up superior strength, they agree to a sit down. And at this meeting, which is called the agreement. Uh, the deal is made in 997 that the High King, Mael Seknail, agreed to split Ireland with Brian Baru. So he, uh, Mael Seknail and the O'Neill faction would take the north and Brian Baru would have control of the southern half of Ireland, including the prosperous trading port town of Dublin. In 999, after a brief siege, Dublin fell to Brian's army, and he could add not just the material wealth of the city, but he could also add now the manpower of the Viking forces there, because the Viking king of Dublin, Citric, he was forced to submit himself as a vassal to Brian Baru. And again, Brian uses a daughter to try and tie an enemy to him. Like I was just saying, he takes one of his daughters and marries it off to or marries her off to Citric. This is in the hopes that it will keep Citric honest and keep him loyal to Brian in the future. Obviously, it doesn't work. Uh, but this display of might led directly to his enemy, the O'Neill High King, recognizing Brian's strength. He sees that, okay, this guy is, is really a power to be reckoned with. I've already made this agree- agreement with him, and he's now taken Dublin under his control I probably should step aside as High King before he comes after that title on his own. Uh, And so the High King of the O'Neill faction cedes over the title of High King of Ireland to Brian Baru. But again, this is a title and that is it. It's simply a title. The weakness of Brian and of any High King at this point in Irish history was that they really had no power except for wherever they could physically reach. They had no central government or bureaucracy, so they weren't able to like regulate tax collection. They weren't able to exert control or uh, 
create a law system and structure uh, and enforcement that would allow them to generate power from the state itself. Truly, the high king ruled with the tip of his spear. And more often than not, when he moved on from one brush fire, three more would pop up right behind him because the power that he had was wherever he physically was, and that was usually with his army. This is why we see in the years leading up to Clontarf, Brian Baru is constantly campaigning in almost every direction. If you look at the maps where uh, you can kind of follow along with his various campaigns, they're they're just wildly flinging all over. He's got naval campaigns along the western coast. He's got a river campaign going up the Shannon. He's got uh, back and forth up in Ulster. He's got campaigns that are just constantly, you know, he'd conquer Ulster and then he'd leave. And as soon as he left, somebody would start another rebellion. And it's just a continuation of that. And you actually see that throughout Irish history. Uh, Eventually, when the English do conquer him, they dealt with that same kind of situation of just a constant state of waiting for the next revolt to happen. Uh, He had to constantly be on hand, and that's the problem with Brian Beru's high king status is that there's no delegating the tasks of ruling to to, to anybody else. There's no system or structure in place for him to delegate certain aspects of ruling to. In 1013, Brian had to scramble to deal with one of these many brush fires. Male Morda of Leinster and Citric Silkenbeard, the king of Dublin, started a rebellion of their own. This was challenging the High King Brian Bruce power over the entirety of Ireland. Male Morda and Leinster is a constant thorn in Brian Bruce's side. He seems to have had a long-running thing with Male Morda, and Citric is a Viking king of Dublin. He's just constantly you know, biding his time, waiting for the the High King, Brian Baru, to look away somewhere else. And then as soon as he's doing that, Citric is planning to uh, take the take advantage of the moment. And that's what happens in 1013. So uh, Brian Baru is forced to take his army into the heart of his enemy's lands. And he sacked a number of towns around Dublin and then put Dublin itself under siege. The siege went fairly poorly for Brian, though, and he had to call it off... Uh, early in 1014, but that doesn't mean he was done because you can't challenge the authority of the High King and have that challenge go unanswered and then still be High King. Brian Baru had to do something about this. So around St. Patrick's Day 1014, he gathers his army again and sets out for Dublin once more. And yes, please don't message me. I do realize I missed a trick here and a smarter podcaster would have put this episode out last week. Yes, I am beating myself up about that entirely. Anyhow, Brian brought his army, made up mostly of men from Munster and Viking vassals from his home regions, as well as a contingent of his old enemy, the O'Neill faction, uh, to an area north of the river uh, Liffey and north of that is the river Toka, and that's where he started to raid and start burn starts burning towns around Dublin. He also sent his son south into the Leinster area to raid the homelands of Malmorda. North of the city proper, there's a peninsula called the Howth, 
and Brian ordered that to be attacked as well and cleared. This is a uh, really kind of a, a key moment here because while this while Brian's army was sacking the house and clearing it, an army under Melmorda and uh, under well not under Citric but sent out by Citric is uh, sent out from Dublin and they are on the march north. They cross the river Toka and they line up ready to take on Brian Baru. Brian Baru camps a little west of Hotha uh, or the Hoth and he arrays his army. And the army of Melmorda and Citric is made up of men from Leinster and then the rest were Vikings from Dublin and then from the islands that we had talked about earlier. So Citric apparently set about getting the Vikings from the Orkneys and the Isle of Man and a bunch of the smaller islands to come and support him by promising them kingdoms of their own in Ireland should their side win. And Citric, for his part, was smart. He hunkered down in Dublin behind the walls with a force strong enough to hold the city if things went poorly for him. Uh, he's reported to have watched the battle from the uh, the walls of Dublin. The two sides had very similar weapons and tactics, if not identical. Uh, both sides used the shield wall to attack and defend. Cavalry and archery played very little roles uh, at Clontarf to, to almost none at all. The spear was the main weapon, again, used by the infantrymen, but uh, once in close, both sides used uh, swords or long daggers. Uh, the swords were made of iron, about three feet long, and they were used more to, to smash and chop the, at their enemy, not to stab or slice. Uh, famously, one of Brian's warriors used a sword in each hand to deal death to the Viking foe. Also, the battle axe was used by both sides, uh, and there was probably a smattering of field tools and cudgels and clubs uh, to kind of round out their weaponry. Uh, the Cogda, which is one of the key sources for the Battle of Clontarf, says of the Irish weapons, quote, Steel, strong, piercing, graceful, ornamental, smooth, sharp-pointed, bright-sided, keen, clean, azure, glittering, flashing, brilliant, handsome, straight, well-tempered, quick, sharp swords in the beautiful white hands of chiefs and royal knights for hewing and for hacking, for maiming and mutilating skins and bodies and skulls, end quote. So clearly the Irish chroniclers had a very high opinion of their weaponry at Clontarf. Uh, and there's a lot to be said about the language used here because it's clearly putting the Irish weaponry in a very positive light, even if at the end it talks about mutilating and maiming, it's talking mostly about the beauty of the weapons in the right hands, uh, of, in the Irish hands. Uh, traditionally, the battle began at dawn on April 23rd, Good Friday, 1014. Now, this was a later addition to the tale, as the annals of the time, the contemporary accounts, don't mention anything about the date, and they don't even use the word Clontarf itself. They don't even mention where the battle took place, let alone on what day. Uh, the, the contemporary accounts just list the various people that were involved in a, quote, great battle. 
uh, with no real time or place. So it's theorized that the date was added later in the Cogda as a way to tr- uh, parallel the Christ-like aspects of Brian Baru. And we'll get to this at the end. I want to talk about this a little bit more. Uh, there's also a lot of merit to the idea that the tide charts, modern tide charts have been done to show that it's very likely that it did happen on the uh, the, the Good Friday like the, the annals tell us. We don't know. Uh, there's conflicting reports, and so when that happens, I'm going to just say, I don't know. Either way, the two armies lined up along the beach on the north side of the River Toka, just to the north of Dublin, and each faced off in three rows. The Vikings had the Vikings from the Orkneys and the other islands, the Isle of Man, up in the front line. In the middle line, they had the Vikings from Dublin, and in the back line, they had the men from Leinster. On the other side, Brian Baru had his Viking vassals up front, and then he had his men from Munster in the middle, and then in the back row, he had uh, the O'Neill faction uh, as kind of a reserve. And that was probably smart because that group report again, there are differing accounts, but it's reported that that group, the O'Neill faction, actually turned around and left the battlefield when they thought uh, that they were not going to win. So it, it seems like that might have been a very intelligent uh, disposition taken by, by Brian Baru. The Vikings also beached their ships behind them. So the whole uh, the battle begins at dawn. Uh, the, it's low tide. The Viking ships are able to come right up onto the sand, and then the Vikings march a little ways inland to line up against their enemy. And because of the low tide, the the ships are beached a little bit farther back than they might normally be. And that is going to play a part here. Uh, The battle begins with one of the great champion-on-champion duels of all time. The quote at the beginning of the episode is from the Cogda, and it's describing it. I just love the idea of... The two men fighting so fiercely that even in death, they're they're clenching each other's hair. The tips of their swords are in each other's hearts. It's very, uh, it's evocative. And I think it was an important way to open the show to kind of tell you the story of Clontarf. Uh, What follows that duel, that kind of throwback to Troy and the the one-on-one heroic battle is a absolute bloodbath. The Irish probably had a numerical superiority with around 10,000 men on the field. The Vikings, even after their island allies under Broderick arrived with their fleets to add to Citric's army, probably only had about six to 7,000 men. So for the next 12 hours from dawn until about four or five that afternoon, This fight rages on and on, and it's a nasty, nasty fight. It's a a bare-knuckle brawl. Uh, Because of their superior fighting ability, the Vikings made a good show of it, but sooner uh, or eventually the sheer weight of Irish numbers began to tell, and the Viking lines broke. Citric's fleeing army was so in shambles that uh, it tried to get back to Dublin on land, and the the entire group of scampering, scattering men get caught at the Toka River at a bridge bottleneck. 
and a, a huge amount of these guys were drowned in their armor trying to get across this river, or they were just slain as they tried to wait to get onto that bridge to get freedom. According to the sources, only about 20 of these men made it back to Dublin safely. Now, the, the rest of Citric's army, when it breaks, instead of going over land to try and get across the Toka and get back to Dublin, they turn around and go back to the beach to try and get to their ships. This is kind of like when we saw at the Battle of Stamford Bridge when the Vikings tried to get back to their uh, ships and then the... the uh, the Saxon forces followed them and ended up slaughtering them at the boats. The same thing happens here because the tide had come in by the time the Battle of Clontarf is ending. So it begins at dawn, it ends at about five o'clock, and the tide has shifted entirely. And now you've got all of the Viking ships are scattered all throughout Dublin Bay. They're not on the beach anymore. So these guys get to the beach. They're probably breathless. They've probably just been through the most exhausting 12 hours of their lives, uh, of, of maybe anybody's lives in history, just constantly swinging a three-pound iron rod for countless hours trying to bash each other's brains in. And then they have to hightail it back to this beach. They get there. And they have no way off the beach. The Their ships, their saviors are gone. And the Irish mob that follows them is, is this, you know, it's, it's, it's a blood-mad Irish mob. And the Vikings are either, you know, slaughtered on the beach or these guys are trying to swim out to their ships. And they are not going to make it. They're, you know, they're wearing their armor. They probably ditch as much of it as they can. But... It's just unlikely that many of them actually made it back to the ships. The victory was almost Pyrrhic in its cost for the Irish. You have six to seven thousand of its ten thousand man army was dead or wounded. Brian Beru's son Mercada or Mercad and many of his captains lay dead on the field of battle. And the Cogna tells us of Brian's grandson's death. And it was, quote, It was then that Torbeck, the son of Mercad, son of Brian, went after the foreigners into the sea, when the rushing tide wave struck him a blow against the weir of Clontarba, and so was he drowned, with a foreigner under him, and a foreigner in his right hand, and a foreigner in his left hand, and a stake of the weir through him, end quote. So Brian Brew's grandson follows the Vikings. The, the Vikings had... Uh, beached their ships near Clontarf Weir. That's where we get the name of the battle. Uh, it's There's a couple of docks, and I'm sure there's some kind of uh, working waterfront structures here. And apparently Brian Brew's grandson, while trying to engage the fleeing enemy, gets struck by a wave and probably ends up either hitting his head or getting run through by one of these underwater stakes or hitting his head on a dock or whatever it might have been, and he ends up dying in the battle. Uh, most important for all of uh, for his cause is the death of Brian Baru. And Br Brian Baru was dead at the end of the day because he was in his 70s or 80s. He's the old high king, and he kind of sat out the action he sat out the action behind the lines in his tent, 
And according to some sources, he was praying because of the fact that the battle landed on a holy day, or maybe he was just an old man and didn't have the ability to fight uh, a full 12-hour battle. Either way, uh, the Viking Broder, the guy who brought all the island mercenaries, he and a group of his men that are fleeing the battlefield, they come upon Brian's tent. And Broder, thinking that he was a priest in some accounts, but also in other accounts knowing that he was the king, Broder cuts him down on the spot. Although in another account, Brian Brew pulls out his sword one last time and takes Broder's uh, leg or, or arm in the attack. Either way, Brian Brew ended with an axe embedded in his head. And Broder uh, didn't last very long. According to the Cogda, he was taken captive and had his belly sliced open and one end of his intestines tacked to a tree. And then he was dragged around and around and around the tree until the rest of his intestines were wrapped around the trunk in front of him. The Battle of Clontarf had a massive kind of sea change effect on the history of Ireland, and it, and it continues to have that effect to this day. There's a lot of debate about whether or not it actually stopped a Viking onslaught. It doesn't seem like uh, that is exactly the case anymore. It seems like the Viking onslaught was petering out already. And as we saw at Folder and in other places, the, the Viking onslaught into other territories was about to reach its peak with uh, Sven uh, Forkbeard, the king of Denmark, who was going to gain the English throne and then pass it on to Canute, his son, and then lose it to Alfred. Uh, we see that happening fairly soon after Clontarf, and then that really signals kind of the end of the Viking Age. If that's the case, it seems unlikely that Ireland was going to be under any kind of serious Viking yoke for much longer. But, you know, you never know what could have happened. Maybe all the Vikings end up in Ireland because that's their last spot where they have power. And then you you maybe did have a truly conquered Ireland. But the, the, I, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that there was so much intermarriage. There was so much assimilation and the Vikings were becoming so Irish in, in the small ways that in the long term, that was probably going to be the end result anyways, is that you were going to end up with Vikings who had become Irish instead of the Irish being forced to become Vikings. So did it stop that particular uh, threat? I don't know. I'm not a historian. I would say it, it probably didn't. It was probably just a very scary threat at the moment. So the chroniclers at the moment made it out to be this existential, horrific thing that was going to happen to them. But there's a good argument to say that there's no such thing as a decisive battle because one battle is always, you know, there's always another battle to be fought. So... Uh, is Clontarf decisive in that it stopped a Viking onslaught? I don't think so. I do think it's decisive in that it gave Ireland its kind of of origin story. Uh, we find every country has to create its own origin story. And 
there there's a nationalistic aspect to that but it's also just how we are as humans we want to explain our origins that's where you get religion that's where you get mythology that's where you get legend and all of that is simply out of an attempt to explain where we come from and this is one of those those key aspects it's if you're creating a story if i'm a bard in say 1250 or 1350 ireland I'm not going to say that the Vikings were like, you know, they were bad, but they were also pretty beatable or, you know, we weren't going to beat them on the battlefield, but we were going to marry so many of them that it didn't matter. That's not a good story. What's a good story is that there were the the oceans were literally vomiting Vikings onto the beaches of Ireland and that Brian Baru and his army of 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 mad Irishmen were able to stop the the onslaught of the hordes of Satan. That's a better story. So a lot of the sources that we have uh, for the Battle of Clontarf and Brian Baru, like the Cogda, are really 150, 200 years, 250 years later, kind of retrospectives, building out the story, fleshing it out. And then also you have to think of history when it's being told, whoever it's being told by, you have to look at it through the prism of the politics of the moment that they're telling that story. So, like in the case of, um, uh, oh, it's escaping me, but anyhow, if if I'm a monk in 1250 Ireland and I'm telling the story of Clontarf, I am very, very aware of the church and its power and its importance to our culture and society. So I'm going to really define all of the characters in this history, you know, not with any concern for what might have been fact or not known fact, but more concern with what are the archetypes that the people hearing this story are going to understand. So let's create characters that are tangible to the, the audience. Brian Baru is that character. So Brian Baru, obviously contemporary accounts talk of him being the emperor of of the uh they talk about him being the emperor of the irish and they do give some account of his ability and they do give some account of the fact that he was a a good king and a uh, a very wise king and smart and they but they also uh you know, I think one epitaph for him is a high king of the Irish of Ireland and of the foreigners and of the Britons and the Augustus of the whole of Northwest Europe. Now, that's obviously an inflated title written years and years later, uh, but it gives you some sense of what people thought of him. But they also created him as this, they, they added flavor to it that they couldn't possibly have known. There's there's parts of Brian Brew's story that's told in later accounts of him fighting the Vikings as a child and hiding in the woods and, and fending off uh, from Viking attacks, uh, saving small towns. And it's kind of, it sounds a lot like Alfred of England. Uh, there's There's a lot of flavor there of Alfred. There's also this idea of him sacrificing himself at the moment of victory for the people of Ireland, uh, of him kind of giving over and, you know, he's spending the last day of his life praying. And it happens to be on Good Friday that he dies. There's a lot of Christ-like flavor. There's also a lot of Charlemagne-like flavor where you have this, uh, this Irish king who's the king of kings, the high king. He's the, uh, he's an 
educated warrior, a poet and a swordsman, a, a brilliant uh, philosopher and also a, a, a religious icon. And so there's a lot of different characters all molded up into one. And who knows? Maybe that was Brian Baru. I just don't necessarily, I think anybody with a, uh, a critical brain or a skeptical, historical-minded brain would look at this and say, all right, let's, let's break it down and see where these sources come from. But all that's to say, I'm fine with it because I think it's like George Washington and the, the, the cherry tree. Like, there has to be mythology behind every country. A, a country can't exist as just the bare bones of we, you know, a, a document with a bunch of signatures and some ink on it. There has to be layers and flavors and colors that went into the creation story that's behind the the nation state and and the irish use that very well i mean they call back to clontarf regularly throughout their history they call back to brian baru even more uh you see throughout the the issues that they have had with England from Cromwell to 1914 and beyond into the Troubles. You see, Brian Baru is a touchstone. Clontarf is a touchstone moment, regularly referred to by politicians and, you know, just the, the, the regular the regular Joe Blow Irishman. So I think that the importance of Clontarf is less in the actual death that occurred on that day. The events of that day, although important in a immediate context, are the the overall effect of Clontarf is larger than that. It has a larger, more impactful effect on history as a whole, simply by being something that the Irish have kind of molded into their uh their creation moment. It's like their exodus uh, for the the Jewish community, it's like the the Battle of Hastings for the for the English. It's that moment where all of a sudden we are a kind of nation. Because that's another thing that it it didn't create Ireland the nation. Brian, you know, his almost his whole line dies at Clontarf, and he's he his side of the family loses or his particular clan loses power fairly quickly after Clontarf. Uh, they regain it, and there's a bunch of intrinsic warfare again between these clans. So after Clontarf, they basically go back to the system that they had before Clontarf. Um, so nothing really changes at that level, and the Vikings don't just leave. They The communities of Vikings that had already settled stay, and there are some that continue to raid and continue to make settlements in Ireland for a little period of time after this. So that doesn't just change. So what about Clontarf changes Irish history? In my mind, it's the, the aftermath 100 years later, 200 years later, 400 years later. That's where we start to see the the dividends really paying off um, in terms of, of the effect that Clontarf the battle had as a whole. All right. Thank you guys for joining us in this episode. Don't forget, rate, review, subscribe. 
We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. Check us out there. And don't forget, we have live streams every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. This week is going to be a good one. Uh, and next week will be even better, I'm sure. So check that out. Next up is the Battle of Clyden and Basil the Bulgar Slayer. So be sure to check in for that. Thank you guys very much for listening. And uh, have a good one. <laughs>